but I had a bit of a panic attack on stage because again, I was in, I was not quite a hundred percent in my usual frame of mind. And I, couldn't tell if I was in the right key or not. And so here I am like trying to bust out a solo dressed fully head to toe in Gene Simmons makeup. You're listening to the Audio Brew Podcast, the podcast for people who make music. Well, we're talking with singer, songwriter, and co-founder of the Floydian Slips, Paul Lazinski. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now you've been part of a Pink Floyd tribute band for over two decades, right? Yeah, yeah, we're in our 23rd year, if you can believe that. It's uh, almost half my life, which is bizarre. (laughs) So incredible. We would love to hear about how that got started. What's the story behind that? Yeah, so I was in a a touring band for about five years in the early 90s. And when that ended, our manager and I ended up being in the same business together. And we basically booked and promoted music in Eugene, Oregon. He worked to promote music and book music at the Wild Duck, which was a music venue and a restaurant there. So he kind of had access to the room. It was about a 450 person room. You know, he turned to me one day and said, geez, Paul, you know, we should put a project together with all of our friends that play music. And I mean, what do you think we should do? And for whatever reason, it just popped into my head. I'm like, dude, I bet we could learn the dark side of the moon. And that would be a blast. Like, let's just see if we can do it. So we put together some friends and, you know, the songs, they're not like technically really difficult, but I mean, you have to get it right, but we did it right. We put it together, booked the show, promoted it. It turned into kind of a thing. And we played that first night. It was back in 96 I think might've been 95. It went so well that they wanted an encore and we're like, Oh shoot, we didn't learn anything else. Like we had learned like pigs and have a cigar and maybe one other thing. So we ended up doing this, the the dark side all over again. And I think we realized that we had something there. So we just kept, we kept booking shows. A couple things that are a little different is that we always try to make it a bit of an event. So we only played maybe once or twice a year and we try to do a lot with lights. We've had lasers, we've had projection screens, we've had props, done full albums. We played, you know, with the Eugene Ballet where we did the Dark Side of the Moon and they danced in front of us. We've done Dark Side, we've done The Wall, we've done Animals. So just kind of keep it unique and different. And, um, and it's just sort of grown. And now we play the Cuthbert in, um, in Eugene once a year on average, and we do Revolution Hall in Portland. And yeah, 23 years on. Wow, that is incredible. I believe we found some videos of the Floydian slips on YouTube even. And I was listening to it and I was like, this looks like, you know, you're almost at a Pink Floyd concert. There's the lights and the show and, and the music was so spot on. It was, it was really cool. Thank you. Yeah. We try to keep the music very authentic. We don't worry that much about the people in the band and what they dress or look like. We're not one of those kind of tribute bands. Those are great, but we don't do that. We just try to capture the spirit of the music. And therefore we have like seven people in the band, actually eight. And I think five of us sing and we all do take turns doing lead vocals. So there's no like Roger Waters guy or David Gilmore guy with one exception. We have a guitar player named Al Terribio who does all the solos and he is an amazing guitar player and he's got the Gilmore lead tone and spirit and vibe down. So nobody else, like I wouldn't even touch it. It's, it's, it's Al's deal. (laughs) Um, But otherwise, yeah, we try to keep the music very authentic and again, put on a good show. 
who else is in the band with you? So I play rhythm guitar and do some of the singing. And we just talked about Al. Um, there's two drummers. One of them is named Ned Failing, and he's in a band in Portland called Mexican Gunfight. He also worked at Pickathon for a long time and does booking at Revolution Hall. The other drummer is a guy named Rich Sellers, and he's based in Eugene. Um, he's in a lot of different bands. One of them is called Candy Apple Blue, which is a yacht rock band, and they're amazing. <laughs> it's really difficult music to get right, and they do. He does probably the bulk of the singing besides me. He can do the Roger Waters parts uh, really well. Then our bass player is Brendan Relliford. Again, that's my, my buddy from way back who um, used to manage The Strangers, which was the band I toured in. Nicole Campbell is one of our singers, so she does backups, and she does the Great Gig in the Sky, which is not easy. Our keyboard player is a guy named Dustin Lanker. He was in the Daddies in Eugene. Our sax player, who plays on whatever songs need sax, is Sean Flannery, and he was also in the Daddies. And then finally, our acoustic guitar player, whose name is Aaron Ebbage, and he also does a lot of singing. And Aaron lives in Eugene, and his gig is that he writes and records music for films and TV. I think that covers everybody. God, I hope I don't forget anybody. I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of talent for one band. After 23 years of doing a tribute band, do you have any advice for people starting one today? I think that, you know, the tribute band scene today is pretty predominantly around bands that are trying to look like the band that they're, they're giving tribute to. So, you know, you have like the Steve Perry guy or the John Bon Jovi guy and everybody in the band kind of corresponds to a player. And I think that that's fine. There's a, obviously a huge, huge scene for that. I mean, there's Hairfest. There's a country one that my advice would be don't necessarily get locked into feeling like you have to do it that way because you also can just play the music and just stay true to the music and the spirit of the music. And I think that people respond to that equally well. And it just depends on where you want to take it and who you want to play it for. Very cool. What was the cinder block story? You mentioned something about that. <laughs> and that got me thinking, what is this? We did the wall for about three years, I think. And it was, it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of music. It's really heavy. We kept trying to make it different in terms of the staging, you know, so we had different lights, we had different video screens. And one year, somebody in the band whose name will go unmentioned had the brilliant idea to build two big platforms on either side of the stage that we could get up on. So there was like this little staircase and you would stand on top of these platforms. And it visually was awesome. When we did Run Like Hell, the lines go back and forth between me and, and Rich, who's our drummer, who's, who will also come out front and sing when the other drummer's drumming. So I was on one side and he's on the other and we're going back and forth, you know, with the lines and it was huge. Then there was another moment where Al was playing the lead guitar to comfortably numb from up there. And it just looked really cool. But to kind of put a facade on it, instead of making some cardboard thing that looked like bricks or a wall, we actually built a cinder block wall that covered these little platforms. It looked great. But at the end of the show for loading out, there were like a hundred cinder blocks to load out. And we're just like, what are we doing? Like, what, what are we going to do with these cinder blocks? And I think they ended up under the bass player's porch 
or his deck in, in his backyard for years. <laughs> and then later we had this funny idea that, you know, what we should have done was have a promotion and we could have signed all of them and had everybody take a cinder block home, which again is a total joke because, you know, you see like some 14 year old kid lugging this like 30 pound <laughs> cinder block home with all of our signatures on it. You know, sometimes we have ideas that are really good. And other times we have ideas that are like, oh, maybe we should have thought about that a little bit. A little bit longer. Unloading. Unloading. <laughs> yeah. After a long show. Oh my All right. God. Yeah. Get up. That's what we wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. Everybody pick up your instruments and grab a cinder block. Oh, geez. That's right. Or two. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a lot of work. How has band life changed due to COVID? Yeah, band life due to COVID. I mean, I think the answer is the same for almost everybody. There's, you know, live gigs are, are done. For the moment, which I, I feel bad for musicians who are trying to make a living, and not just musicians, but you know, sound engineers, lighting engineers, bookers, pretty much anybody that has anything to do with live music is on hiatus. You know, it's I've seen it in articles and heard it said it's the first thing that closed and and the last thing that's going to open, which is live music. So a band now has to figure out how to get to their audience without playing a live show. You know, I'm talking now specifically about maybe, you know, local bands. I mean, if you're a touring band, you know, it's even harder because if you were able to tour, you are really hurting. But in terms of just wanting to be an artist to connect with an audience, you know, what you're needing to do now is, is lean on the internet in ways that maybe you didn't before. I mean, in some senses, there's more opportunity because I think that people have more time. This is how I found you guys. I was looking at all the different music groups on Facebook that I'm in, you know, there's the Northwest artist page and all these different pages. And there was a post about your podcast and I started listening. I don't think that I ever would have found it had I not, you know, made the time to dig around. Now, this is something that every musician should probably should be doing anyway to help promote, but there are only so many hours in the day if you're doing it yourself. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, you have to get really creative during this time to do that. And the other thing that's equally important is that you really have to be respectful of what's going on. I put a CD out two months ago and I, I wasn't so driven to get it out on a certain day that I couldn't be a little flexible. Mm. I mean, you guys know what's going on every week. There's some thing going on in the news. Like right now, the whole West Coast's on fire. Kind of a selfish thing to say, but I look around and I'm like, God, I'm so glad I got it out. Yeah, I had this little window where there was nothing crazy happening that week. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of times musicians, they try to time their releases around another artist's release. But now we have this thing where you could look completely tone deaf, putting out a song or a video or an album on the day that a thousand people have lost their homes in a fire. I mean, you don't want to do that, right? So I think there's that other element there that you have to be careful of. I could also make a counter argument to that though, that like now more than ever, people need an escape. That was a big and open question. You answered it really <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> You've got a three-piece power trio as well. And I think you just mentioned that you had an album release, but I swear I could have seen that you had a show coming up or you were doing a live yeah. stream show. Tell us about that. What's What's going on? Sure. So there's a couple things there. In you know February and March, when all this stuff happened, I'm sure that you guys noticed that everybody who owned a guitar did a live stream show on Facebook. <laughs> and some of it was just like, I'm going to play at five o'clock every Thursday, or it was less formalized. And you just were like, 
at night you go on Facebook and your buddy in New York is drinking and playing music. You're like, this is great. I chose not to do that because again, the longer I waited, the more I felt like I was just jumping on this bandwagon. And now it's kind of chilled out a little bit. I think it, we got over kind of the hype cycle of, of that. Not to say that it was a bad thing. It wasn't, it was awesome. And it was awesome to see people play that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily go see because they don't live in your town or whatever. Again, just doing this research, I stumbled on this thing in Portland called PDX Couch Tour. And what it is, is it's a guy named Brian Strauss who is in, in the business and it dawned on him that people are out of work. And so he actually partnered up with a venue and got a lighting guy named Jason Goers, who coincidentally does the lights for the Floydian Slips, and a woman who does sound named Lizzie Tanzer. And they basically started doing a, a new thing where the band plays in a venue, but nobody's in the venue. They have like six or seven cameras and they live stream it, but they also use Zoom. So your fans are actually on this big screen to the side of the state if they choose to join via Zoom and you can actually see them. So that's kind of fun. And we just did that. Um, we did that last week and we're going to do it again on October 29. And then there's another one called uh, Northwest Talent Spotlight. And that one is done by a guy named Bobby Palazza, I think his last name is. I apologize, I might have got that wrong. But he's in Vancouver. He has a little different of a spin. So it's like you play a few songs, he'll ask about the song, he'll ask about your instruments, how long you've been together, play a couple more songs. So there's a couple different forms that that's taken. It's a way that if bands are comfortable getting out and playing, you know, that they can do it in a, in a safe way. And so PDX couch tour has done like more than a hundred of these with no, you know, COVID incidents. So they've got it down to a science. So it's actually been really fun because again, socially distancing, but it's been great to play with the guys in the band because we had a reason. And then the shows are great. I mean, it's lights, full sound monitors. It's like, you know, live and loud but you're playing to potentially the world as opposed to a small venue. <laughs> That's really awesome. So are they doing ticket sales with that too? Or It's a donation situation and the donations go to the producers of the show to offset their costs. And then after a certain cap, it goes to the band or they also encourage you to donate to charity or whatever. And for our gig, we just told the venue to just keep it because they, I mean, they put it on and we were really excited about it. So we're not in it for the money. Like that's the thing that I'm really thankful for is that I'm not trying to do it as a living. It's an expression and it's really, really important to me, but I don't have to worry about that layer of like making a certain amount of money every month because it's a hobby. Yeah. That's really awesome. I think there's a lot of musicians that are right there with you. I mean, I did the obligation thing for five years and I got tired of eating corn chip sandwiches out of the back of a van. So, <laughs> oh my you know. gosh, we know what that's yeah. like. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's, yeah. You, you reach a certain age and it's, it's not as fun as it was when you were younger. <laughs> yeah. How did you manage to find balance with career, family, and music? And have you found a balance? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I have finally found a balance. And the way that it works is that I know that I have a certain amount of time and brain energy to be able to devote to being creative. So I have to be choosy with how I use that energy. A good example is that prior to playing this gig that we were talking about earlier, I hadn't actually played a gig with Dave and Mike, which are the guys in my band, in about a year and a half. And the reason for that is because we were working on the CD. 
And, um, and I don't really have time to do both. If I book a gig, I'm focused on getting ready for the show, set list, promoting the gig, you know, rehearsals, all that stuff. If I'm recording, you know, I don't have time for that. I need to just focus on writing the song, you know, putting down the guitar part and mix. I just have to be really choosy with that because it's very easy to get overextended and then you're really not doing a good job with anything, which, you know, nobody feels good about that. I sure don't. But it's taken a long time to kind of learn that over the years. My kids are a little bit older now, but when you have really little kids, it was pretty much like I'd pick up a guitar and just mess around and maybe record a couple of ideas. Maybe I'd just play some covers. I'd learn how to play a song that I wanted to play, but there wasn't any real aspiration of like putting out an album or doing anything really quote unquote big or something that would be very time intensive. But then when the kids get a little older, I've got a little time. It's like, oh, wait a minute. My nights are a little bit more free. So I actually can spend like an hour every night working on a record or promoting the record or doing something like that. Giving yourself permission to do it and not feel bad that you're not like spending the amount of time now that you maybe used to when you were younger. There are certain periods that have been very busy and very fruitful and productive, and there's others that haven't been. And in the end, at the end of the day, you've lived a creative life and you've created music that people can listen to long after you're gone. I work at a PR firm. A lot of our entry staff come from U of O and I can't tell you, I'll be at, a, <laughs> at an intro lunch with them or something. And we're talking about this, that, and the other thing. And all of a sudden they're like, dude, I came to the new year's Eve show in 2006 at the Floydian slips at the McDonald theater, you know, like, so just living this creative life, it's more than just what happened last week or last month or even last year. It's the sum total of everything. And so you have to give yourself a little bit of slack if you're going through a period where you either aren't inspired or you, or you cannot find the time to do it. Hopefully, you know, you will find and or make the time. I mean, I put in a lot of late nights, right? It's like going to bed at one because I'm like, the only time I really had was 11 to one. But, mm. you know, you yeah. just make it work. Yeah. I think what you're really touching on there is for the musician and or the person that's producing music or making music is defining success and what that means to you. Because for some of us early on in our career, success to us meant 12 hours a day overworking ourselves to death, trying to work on our music and our career and get everything rolling and kicked off. And maybe we thought success was a record deal or we thought success was getting a certain number of followers or fans, but it doesn't look the same for everybody and it doesn't have to be the same for everybody. Yeah. I, th I think that's a really, really good topic. And you're right. The definition of success is a really slippery eel. When I got out of college and was in the touring band, our entire goal was to get a record deal. Like that's all we wanted to do. We thought if we got a record deal, then we made it. That's success. We played for five years. I have all the gigs logged. We played 900 shows in five years. You know, we were really just, we were road dogs. We did the West Coast and the Rockies and the Midwest and Canada. And it was a blast, but never a consummated record deal was thrown our way. After you've been passed over by enough record labels back in the early 90s, we felt there was a, maybe a bit of a stigma. Mm -hmm. However, you know, some of the bands that we were playing with stuck it out now they're well known widespread panic big head the monsters because they just 
kept touring and building and building their thing. But we burned out. And so when I got out of the band, I actually kind of felt like a failure, right? I was just like, I never achieved that success that I wanted. We never got the label deal. (laughs) In retrospect, knowing what I know now, it's a pretty damn good thing we didn't get the record deal because then all of a sudden you're beholden to the, the record company and you owe even more money than we owed. And that's when the work really starts. So if we were burning out, man, forget it. But what happened was that about... I don't know, maybe five, 10 years later with perspective, I look back on that time and I still do. And I thought, no, it wasn't a failure at all. It was amazing. You know, we did all these shows. I went to all these places. I never would have gone. I met a bunch of people. I've got these lifelong brothers that were in the band with me. I've got stories upon stories upon stories. It was amazing. Even in retrospect, your definition of success can change with a little perspective To answer your actual question, I think that for me, what I want to do is leave a legacy of music so that when I'm long gone, they could hear the couple of CDs that I put out. And I know that's only meaningful to a small handful of people, probably mostly family. But, you know, again, living a life of creativity and a life of music, to me, that would be success. That was a good answer. (laughs) That was good. We could probably talk about that for an hour, but we won't. So how do you balance between the Floydian slips and your solo uh, power trio? It's a good question because it couldn't be further apart. You've got a tribute band that plays Pink Floyd music. I mean, we play to between 1,000 and 5,000 people. And then the other end is the original prog rock power trio (laughs) that is all original music. And that, you know, I mean, let's be honest, we'll play to maybe 50 people. Uh, on a really good night, you know, more than that, if it's promoted, right. But it's two different worlds. It's actually very satisfying to do both. You know, I get my large audience fix from the Floydian slips and then the super creative original fix from the other band. So it's nice to have both. But to answer your question, balancing both is tricky. I've got a Facebook page for my own music. And of course, Floydian slips has its own Facebook page. And I don't think we ever discussed it as a band, but there's kind of an unwritten rule. We don't promote our personal projects on the Facebook page uh, for the Floydian Slips. So if I have a show or I put a CD out, I don't post on the Slips site because we try to keep that pure and just Floyd related, which, you know, is a little bit, sometimes I'm like, oh, because I could reach like three or four times as many people if I was to do that, but we just want to keep them separate. There have been some incidents where I've been able to kind of combine the worlds. And, and the one that we talked about on the phone the other day was, you know, our 20th anniversary. We had a big show at Revolution Hall and then we did the Cuthbert the next day. I had stickers made, which basically just said, you know, thank you for 20 years of support for the slips or I can't remember how I worded it. And I stuck them on my CDs and I literally walked through the line of people waiting to get in and I handed out my CDs to to folks for free and just said, thank you for supporting. This is my solo CD. And then at the Cuthbert, we had a merch table and I basically told them, well, I said this at, at Rev Hall too, anything anybody buys, just give them a CD for free. Like, I don't care if they buy a hat, a sticker, a shirt, you know, just make sure they get a CD also. And, you know, that was like maybe crossing the line just a little bit, but 20th anniversary. And I mean, I founded, co-founded the band. I'm like, I can get away with that. That's okay. That's about as skeezy as I was comfortable getting with it, you know, because you have to be careful with that. So I, I, you know, I hope that the slips is a way for people to maybe find out about my music who wouldn't have previously, but I'm pretty conscious to not use it in the wrong way. 
Well, that was a good way to make it a little bit personal, like thank you to to the people who have supported you. It's a long story of why I had this many CDs made, but it was a cost thing. It was cheaper to make more. And so I had like literally boxes and boxes of these CDs. And I'm like, they're doing me no good sitting in my garage. You know, everybody who I know who should have one has one. I think I got rid of like 500. Again, for me, if someone has that and and they play it or it's stuck in their car or whatever, you know, it's better than sitting in my garage. You know, every little bit helps. Every little bit goes towards that end goal of getting the music out there. Speaking of CDs, that brings up an interesting question. It seems like CDs are definitely down in sales, but I keep hearing from certain people that there's still a market for manufacturing and selling CDs at shows. In terms of CDs, I'm on the fence. I don't know exactly the answer to that question because a lot of people don't have players anymore. Even new cars don't have CD players in them. You know, when I, when I send out a copy of my latest CD, you know, there are a handful of people who just said, I don't have anything to play this on except for my car, but I still like to make the physical actual thing that you can touch and feel in hand to somebody. There's just something about that, that you can't replicate with digital or even giving them like a download card that they're never going to use. Let's be honest. Right. I have it in my head of like, I got to make at least a few hundred so I can mail them out, send them out, give them to the people who still have CD players. But having said that, I promote the fact that I'm on Apple Music and Spotify just as hard as I send people to Bandcamp because, you know, the truth is people stream music. I mean, that's the primary way that people listen these days. I guess you just got to cover all the bases somehow. I also saw in the news that there was a little bit of a resurgence of cassette tape sales as well. And I thought that is that is interesting. And I think a lot of it is just nostalgia. What was it? It was the uh, the Stranger Things soundtrack or it was the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. It's that type of nostalgic feel and sound. And realistically, people aren't going to really play those tapes a lot. There's a band called Ghost that's like a heavy Satan band, but they're super melodic. It's really weird. They're kind of like Kiss in that they have costumes and personas and all this stuff, but like the music is all like melodic Satan music. But it's very tongue-in-cheek. In fact, I, I'm still on the fence. That like, I think it might actually be a, a the whole thing might be a joke actually. And part of the reason I think that is that one of their players had a keytar and pl- had, did a keytar solo at a show, which I'm just like, you just don't pull out a keytar you know, in, in all seriousness anymore. And then the other thing was that they did sell eight tracks of their latest album. Oh, nice. That's awesome. And they were gone. Like before I was going to buy one, just nobody has it. I mean, I actually do have an eight track player from my, my parents' old house. It's in a box somewhere, but it's like, you know, people are buying them just to have them. They're not going to play an eight track of the new ghost album. Um, and by the time I tried to buy one, they were all gone. <laughs> Wow. So, yeah. There's something to it. <laughs> it's, that, it's that this is really cool. I have no way to play it, but I want one. Right. <laughs> you know? It's, yeah. It's a lot of fun. I think we just dusted off and got out our record player the other day. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, vinyl is absolutely coming back. And just the last like five or six years, you know, my oldest kid is 23. And for the last like four or five years, he and his buddies go to the record store. He's probably got a couple of hundred records at this point. And, I, and it's not a fad. Like they literally will listen to, to records. It's fully back with Gen Z. Like they're into the vinyl. They're into the tactile experience of the album art. He even did something I did back in college. He's like, oh, I bought this album because I thought the cover was interesting. I don't even know if it's any good. Yeah, I think vinyl is making a resurgence right now. 
We kind of have a tradition with all of our guests. We like to ask them their biggest gear fail or anything that is like the biggest fail that you'd like to share with us. Oh boy, I have a doozy and I have to be careful of (laughs) how much I disclose because I'm not sure who will be listening to this. So the band I toured with was called The Strangers and we had a a band um, that we played with quite a bit that was out of Eugene called The Renegade Saints. And we're all still great friends to this day. They were our brothers on the road. So we'd open for them. They'd open for us. If we were in town, they'd maybe pull me up on stage to do a solo. I was the lead guitarist in, in The Strangers or vice versa. And actually Al Taribio from The Slips was in that band. So that's how I know him from way back. They were doing a Halloween show at the Wow Hall in Eugene. And let's just say that I was um, in a slightly altered state. And the caveat on top of that was that I, because it was Halloween, I was in full Gene Simmons kiss makeup and costume. And they decided to pull me up on stage to do a solo in a jam, which was just a very basic, like, you know, song in E or whatever. But I had a bit of a panic attack on stage because again, I was in, I was not quite hundred percent in my usual frame of mind. And I, couldn't tell if I was in the right key or not. And so here I am like trying to bust out a solo dressed fully head to toe in Gene Simmons makeup and not really grappling like who, who I am, like, who am I actually here? This is really surreal and weird. Cause everybody's looking at me weird, right? I'm in kiss makeup and I hear I'm playing the solo and I think it's going really badly, but I'm not sure it might be going really well. I just can't tell. And I'm looking around and got people are looking at me And then the band brought the music way down. And I'm like, are they doing that because I'm in the wrong key? Or are they doing that just because that's what we're doing? So I was really shaken. It took me like a couple of weeks to get back to center. That's the worst story I could give you about a musical experience. Did you ever find out? Nope. And I even asked them like days later, I'm like, how was that? Whatever. And they were kind of like, no, it was all right. You know, I I got this answer that again, could have been that they were being nice and it was absolutely horrible and embarrassing, or they were just like, no, it was fine. You know, it's just, I never really got the answer. So yeah. Nothing, nothing that, that made it very clear. Like, oh man, that was epic. You know, Nope. that was a tough one. <laughs> oh no. Just, no, yeah. it was good. That's actually the hardest. <laughs> I will tell you right now, though, that like now I understand going back again to Pink Floyd, why somebody like Sid Barrett, who like basically ate acid for breakfast, lunch and dinner, would have an absolute nervous breakdown and lose his mind for his entire life. You know, I mean, you just (laughs) you're playing with fire. That's incredible. So you finished you actually finished the solo, though. As far as I remember. Yeah. And then you walked (laughs) off the stage. You were like, mic drop done. Pretty much. So your newest album that you released this year, I think, you recorded that with the help of your drummer. Yeah, that's right. So David built a studio at his home. About 10 years ago, he started doing this. We were in a band called Colorfield, which was a band before this trio. And his sister was a singer. And Mike, who's our bass player, was the bass player. So we did an album with Rob Dacre at uh, Falcon, which sounded amazing. It's like it was the best sounding album I'd ever been on. And Dave out of nowhere says something along the lines of, I think I could get a better drum sound if I built my own studio. And I'm just like, dude, you're high. Were were you at my Halloween gig back in the day? You know, and 
And, um, but I'm like, great dude, go for it, whatever. And he's a super nice guy, optimistic guy. He's, you know, just open-minded. So he, he started getting some gear and putting some stuff together. And, and he said, Paul, I need you to come over and play some guitar. Cause now I'm at a point where I just need to record and learn and stuff. And so that, that's actually how our very first CD started, which came out 10 years ago. And then, you know, basically we've just never stopped recording. And what happens is that when we get a certain amount of songs and I'm thinking like, okay, these make sense together, you know, and this has a cohesive kind of picture and story to it. I'm like, okay, let's stop recording and let's start mixing and let's, you know, let's finish these and put them out and then we'll go back and do another one. So that's how that's been working. And because he has the studio at his place, we do everything that's, you know, important sonically there. I mean, it's all important sonically, but drums, acoustic guitars, a lot of vocals, things like that. And then I can do a lot of like guitar overdubs at my house and keyboards that are like MIDI. Our bass player can record either at Dave's studio or at his home. He's got a, a home setup. So we try to do the backing tracks together as a band, but it doesn't always work out that way. It just depends on what's going on um, and what the song is. Sometimes it's a demo to a click and I'll take it over and he'll put the drums down and then we build it from there. So we've done it every which way, but I think every CD sounds exponentially better because he gets better gear and more knowledge. You know, again, it's a journey. We're just, we keep learning and we keep trying to outdo the last one. And I will say the one we put out in 2005, it's called Hearts and Reason. I kind of thought I might not want to put another one out because I was so happy with it. It was ridiculous. It sounded amazing and it just accomplished everything I wanted to in terms of the flow and the songs and all that. And I had such a great response. There's a couple of friends who to this day, they just talked to me about that CD and I'm like, God, I don't know if I want to do another one. <laughs> so anyway, but long story short, you know, I got over that and, um, and yeah, we put this thing out a couple months ago and, and I, I, I'm really proud of this one too. Great. I think we're going to play a song from that. I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about it. Um, the song is called Ride, and it's the second song on the CD. We're coming up on kind of a weird milestone in my life. Five years ago, my father passed away, and then two and a half months later, my mom passed away. And my dad was kind of, we knew that was coming. He was ill for a long time. My mom was not quite as uh, ready for this was one of those periods where I would just pick up a guitar and see what would come out and I would just record. And this song ride came out of that period. And my sense is that it's tied in with sort of the release of my mom and dad into wherever is next and them sort of, you know, sending me some kind of a calming message. So I think it's, you know, it's one of the songs I'm proud of. Happy for you guys to play it. It's great. Awesome. Well, we want to thank you for joining us and kind of sharing your personal journey with us. Well, thank you, guys. This was super fun. I appreciate it. I love the podcast. I'm glad that you guys are rocking it, and I look forward to continuing to listen more and more. Tell me secrets of your
taking the time to listen to this episode. Please show your support by subscribing to this podcast. Visit us at theaudiobrew.com and sign up for the handcrafted email. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You've been listening to the Audio Brew Podcast from Rockaway Beach, Oregon.